Welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. And while you're there, you can click the link to my other podcast that looks at more recent movies out in theaters and on VOD. It's called the Quipster Film Review Podcast. Check out the link at Quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into one of the most requested films since I've been doing this podcast. It starts a three-part series looking at movies from the 1980s, comedies that feature ghosts. So I guess you can imagine what I'm going to be covering today from 1984, Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters is a PG-rated film, probably PG-13 today. It does have scary images, some language, and smoking. The runtime is an hour and 45 minutes. The main cast includes Bill Murray, Sigourney Weaver, Dan Aykroyd, Harold Ramis, Rick Moranis, Ernie Hudson, Annie Potts, and William Atherton. The director is Ivan Reitman, and the screenplay written by two of the stars, Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis. Now, the inspiration for Ghostbusters really started in the mind of Dan Aykroyd. Aykroyd was somebody who grew up in this family that believed and And they experienced many paranormal occurrences while they were living in their Kingston, Ontario farmhouse they had owned for five generations. Dan's grandmother claimed to have her bed covers mysteriously pulled off of her from time to time. One time she was tossed out of bed and bitten several times in her arms and legs by some unseen force. Dan's grandfather, he was a telephone engineer for Bell, who experimented with communicating with the dead. He wanted to do that through high vibration crystals that he placed inside radios. Dan's mother, she said she saw apparitions while she was nursing him as a baby, and she also would hear from time to time voices of aboriginal spirits while she walked around outside. At eight years old, Ackroyd, he started perusing his great-grandfather's vast parapsychology library in the home. By 15 years old, Ackroyd, he was an avid reader of his father's quarterly journal of the American Society for Psychical Research. As an adult, Ackroyd became a society member. He had his first first-hand experience in the early 1970s. He and a friend, they heard this recurring loud knocking sound while they were staying in the family cottage. They got up, they investigated, and they saw this tube-shaped flitting of blue and green lights at the top of the stairs. This caused them immediately to escape and stay elsewhere. In the early 1980s, Dan's father, he found a bunch of journal articles that were written by Dan's great-grandfather in the early 20th century that described their family's alternate lives as Edwardian spiritualists. They led seances, people fell into trances, that one seance described a trumpet had voices coming out of it as it mysteriously floated on its own around the room. It fell crashing down to the floor when somebody who was not part of the the seance circle walked into the room. Ackroyd would later convert that same seance room into his private office. He claimed, hey, that's where his family They've always done their business in that room, so why not? While there, he was reading an article on quantum physics and parapsychology, and he really keyed in on this theory that would shape some of his beliefs later about the possibility of freezing an apparition using modern technology. Now, Ackroyd is somebody who thinks parapsychology has always been unfairly disregarded. Many people have unexplainable experiences, and yet they dismiss them as somehow just their imagination. 
Most people just keep all of that inside. Only about 10%, he says, reports that they've seen anything like that to somebody else. And he mused that more people might actually reach out if there were ads on television or listings in the yellow pages that coaxed people to anonymously contact paranormal investigators that were ready to believe them. Around this time, Aykroyd, who happened to be a fan not only of ghosts and parapsychology, but he also was a fan of old comedy. And he mused while he was watching a lot of old comedies that ghosts and comedy have always really gone together. Laurel and Hardy did The Live Ghost. Bob Hope did a film called The Ghost Breakers. Abbott and Costello did Hold That Ghost. Olsen and Johnson did Ghost Catchers. The Bowery Boys did Spook Busters and Ghost Chasers. The Three Stooges did The Ghost Talks, and Martin and Lewis did Scared Stiff. He mused that, hey, maybe the time was ripe for a ghost comedy for the 1980s, something that would incorporate not only some of the fun slapstick comedy of yesteryear, but also more modern thought, parapsychology, quantum theory, scientific gadgetry, the work of celebrity ghost hunters like Hans Holzer. Ackroyd took all of these ideas and he started writing a ghost hunting comedy screenplay in late 1981. It was meant to be a vehicle for him and his frequent collaborative comedic partner, John Belushi. The title he put on the screenplay, Ghost Smashers. Set in the future, supernatural beasts have emerged on Earth after microwave transmissions have torn a hole in the fabric of our dimension. Ackroyd and Belushi were to play these blue-collar guys named Stance and Bankman, who work for this interdimensional franchise that specializes in trapping ghosts. Their interdimensional employer, named Shandor, has trapped Zul, this deadly minion of a powerful demigod called Gozer, and Stance and Bankman are assigned to take on Gozer's powerful apparitions that have been sent into their dimension to retrieve Zul. The final act would depict the Ghostbusters entering into Gozer's supernatural dimension to battle the demigod. As Eckward was putting all of this together in March of 1982, while he was writing a line for Belushi's character, Ackroyd would receive a fateful phone call from his agent, Bernie Brillstein. Brillstein informed Ackroyd that Belushi had just died of a drug overdose. Distraught and depressed, Ackroyd really found not much joy in continuing to work on this rather grim script that he had meant for his fallen best friend, and he pushed it aside, at least for now. In early 1983, Ackroyd started to talk about what he was working on, and he mentioned his half-complete Ghost Smashers script, to his agent, Brillstein, and he wondered if, you know, maybe this was still worth completing. He had a lot of really good ideas that he was putting into it. He thought maybe maybe he could co-star somebody else, Michael Keaton, maybe another Saturday Night Live alum like Chevy Chase, or maybe Bill Murray. Brillstein showed a copy of the script to John Belushi's former agent, Mike Ovitz, and Ovitz took the idea over to Universal Pictures to executive Sean Daniel. Daniel thought, you know, the natural choice to head this on was the person that Ackroyd had worked with best in movies, Blues Brothers and Trading Places director John Landis. Unfortunately, at that time, Landis was mired in legal issues following a tragedy that caused the deaths of several actors during his segment of Twilight Zone, the movie. He was seeking to get away from Hollywood for a while. Now, at that time, Ovitz represented the other SNL alum that was discussed, Bill Murray. He thought, you know, this could sell pretty easily if this were a Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd vehicle. So he set up a meeting between the comedians, and Murray expressed interest. He thought, you know, maybe he should take it to Ivan Reitman, somebody he had worked with before. They made two successful movies together, Meatballs and Stripes, and, and Reitman happened to be another Ovitz client. So 
Ovitz took it to Reitman, but Reitman, as he read it, he really didn't like it. He thought, you know, this was all action. The characters were fighting monsters on every page. This would easily cost, just from the 40 pages he read, $150 million to make. It was an action-packed fantasy extravaganza. There was not much in terms of characterizations or suspense or pacing or romance. And it was also too dark to really be funny. And it used a lot of parapsychology lingo that only a physicist might fully comprehend. He pushed it aside and pretty quickly forgot about it. Ackroyd, though, decided to complete the script after all. He added a third ghost smasher named Ramsey. This was a role he hoped could be filled by his Trading Places co-star, Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy, though, was pretty busy at the time. He was doing SNL, and he was going to follow that up with a stand-up comedy tour, eventually becoming a TV special called Delirious. But Ackroyd was not dismayed. He continued to complete the script, and in order to help sell the concept, he enlisted the help of a character illustrator friend named Tom Enriquez. Enriquez drew up conceptual art demonstrating the look of various creatures that Ackroyd had in his script, as well as a lot of the scientific equipment that was used by the Ghost Smashers. Ackroyd videotaped himself wearing a prototype Ghost Smasher uniform, and he was holding a makeshift Neutrono wand, the weapons that these Ghost Smashers would use to capture ghosts. Once the script was complete, he sent the package again to Ivan Reitman. Reitman took a look at the videotape, and he thought... You know, this was intriguing. He'd give the script another look. He still found the whole thing exhausting, but he liked the concept of a company that was called out to extinguish ghosts like some sort of fireman. He decided he was going to meet with Ackroyd, and he offered some suggestions on how he could make that story much more accessible. First, Reitman felt that this story should be set in the modern day, not in the future. It should be in an American city that everybody who was watching this film would recognize. New York City, preferably. And instead of jumping right into the action right away, this should be an origin story. It should show how the company started and the invention of the ghost-catching equipment and how the men make their first bust. That way, audiences would be keyed in all the way from the beginning as to what was going on. Reitman was pretty busy at the time. He had several projects that were cooking, including one with Harold Ramis. It was called Big Trouble. This was meant to be a potential vehicle for a a few comedians, including Bill Murray and John Candy, and it was going to be set on an alien planet. Reitman suggested getting Ramis on board to help write Ghost Smashers and to offer him a starring role to help sweeten the deal. They visited Ramis's office on the Burbank Studios lot, and Reitman began to explain the premise and told Ramis that you know maybe he should cannibalize a lot of the concepts he was putting into big trouble and use them in Ghost Smashers, including one about characters becoming dogs and then turning back to human again. After listening for about 20 minutes, Ramis said he was in. In May of 1983, Reitman set up a pitch meeting with Columbia Pictures chair Frank Price. He pitched it as poltergeist, but with Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd as the rescue team. Price agreed to fund $25 million if this film could get into theaters by June of 1984. They needed a big summer release, and it was also two months prior to the Summer Olympics, which would cut into the potential audience. This left only 13 months to overhaul the entire Aykroyd original script, to cast the film, and to find an effects house that could deliver hundreds of high-tech optical effects. Now, another hurdle was that Murray still had not officially committed. He said he was trying to branch out at that time as a serious actor, and the pet project that he had been co-writing, this adaptation of W. Somerset Mom's drama, The Razor's Edge, it was stalled. They were having a hard time trying to get somebody to make this film, and that left his availability in doubt for some time. Ackroyd devised a solution that might benefit all parties. 
He said that they should contact Columbia and say that if they wanted Murray for Ghostmasters, they'd have to fund the Razor's Edge first. So Columbia had a producer attached to the Razor's Edge within an hour of Frank Price hearing Murray's ultimatum. Now, while Murray was off on the other side of the world making Razor's Edge, Ramis and Reitman visited the basement of Ackroyd's Martha's Vineyard home to hammer out a new script. Ackroyd was very optimistic about working with Ramis. They had both worked with Reitman before for a Toronto TV game show called Greed, and Ramis also had a surprising knowledge about psychics, about the history of the medium and of the mediums, ancient myths, and quantum physics. First, they decided they were going to retitle this to Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters just had a more comedic ring to it. And Remus thought that the comedy would work better if the characters would control their own fate instead of just do whatever they do just for a paycheck. The heroes went from blue-collar lackeys to scientists, and that was meant to explain their ability to create these sophisticated hardware inventions. Reitman pushed the idea further by having the characters become university parapsychology professors, professors who were forced out of their jobs and they started their own practice and designed their high-tech tools to prove their theories on the job while exterminating ghosts in a New York that has suddenly become overrun by ghost activity. Now, in Ackroyd's original script, there really was very little distinction between Stance and Vankman and Ramsey. Ramis thought that this was all wrong. He felt that even the smallest character in Ghostbusters should have a distinct personality and something to contribute to the overall plot or the comedy. So Ramis rewrote Venkman's dialogue specifically for Bill Murray. He had a knack for that, having experienced scripting him before. And he added another Ghostbuster character that he could play. Ramis took the name Egon from a former classmate who was a Hungarian refugee and Spengler after German philosopher Oswald Spengler. He modeled Egon's appearance after somebody that he saw on the cover of an architectural magazine. The character of Ramsey was rewritten as Winston Zenimore, an ex-military demolitions expert that was hired to be the Ghostbusters headquarters security guard. Winston would be there as a non-scientist and he could act as an audience surrogate for the Ghostbusters to explain their concepts and all of their high-tech hardware to. And Murray's character, Peter Venkman, he became the pitch man of the group, the mouth. Ackroyd's Ray Stance, he would be the enthusiastic engineer, the heart or the hands. And Ramis's Egon Spengler would be the stoic, data-driven nerd, the brain. There were more character touches involving ghosts and their life in the containment system, but Ryman decided he didn't want any elements that portrayed ghosts sympathetically. He wanted them eliminated because those things took away from the comedy. He also nixed Ackroyd's intended ending where the men would fight solo in different dimensions because he thought the comedic chemistry worked much better when these men were together. As for the first bust made by the Ghostbusters, they decided to center it around one of Ackroyd's vaporous apparitions called Onion Head. The Onion Head ghost he was later renamed Slimer by the real Ghostbusters cartoon. But at that time, it was called Onion Head, and he was called that because this ghost was meant to have a disgusting stench about him, although many of its scatological qualities was cut from the film due to pacing issues. Now, of all of Gozer's minions that Ackroyd concocted, the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man, a giant mascot come to life, was one that showed the most comedic possibilities. So its appearance was pushed to the climactic ending. It used to be kind of in the middle of Ackroyd's story. It was going to be a surrogate for the main baddie, Gozer. Gozer was a name that Ackroyd took from a real-life account of a haunting in England. And they went back and forth as to how Gozer should look. Should he look like the devil? Or 
maybe it should be Evo Shandor, who is rewritten to be kind of a, a cult leader for the purpose of their new story. Shandor would be portrayed as kind of a comical guy in a suit, somewhat like Pee Wee Herman, they surmised. Or maybe he should be Mr. Stay Puft himself. Reitman pushed for Gozer to have a much more androgynous look. It could be pretty much any look that he or she wanted. So after Grace Jones and Anne Carlyle could not commit to playing Gozer on short notice, they secured the services of Yugoslavian actor Slavica Jovan. Now, Ramis also felt that the story really should have a love interest, so they created a character, Dana Barrett. They put Dana into their first revision. In that first Ramis Ackroyd script, Dana would be revealed to be a fugitive interdimensional extraterrestrial. Now, realizing that this angle really, it was meant more for laughs than romance, they still needed a romance, so they later changed Dana to a human client altogether, and she would be living in a building that becomes the source for the dramatic uptick in ghosts in New York. They also developed a comical neighbor in Dana's building named Louis Tully, who would get possessed and then Dana would be put into mortal jeopardy. Because Vinkman would end up falling for Dana, that would give the Ghostbusters additional incentive to prevail when she turns into a victim. Now, many actresses did audition to play Dana Barrett. Denise Crosby, Daryl Hannah, Julia Roberts among others. Sigourney Weaver's agent got her an audition, but Ryman thought, well, maybe she was just too serious, but you know, that was kind of the point of her auditioning. She hoped that shedding her Ice Queen image would increase her appeal to do other kinds of movies. She'd performed zany comedy before. She did quite a bit off-Broadway, and she would, in her audition, win Reitman over altogether. She spontaneously pretended to be possessed like a dog in her audition. She got on all fours. She started howling. She started gnawing on the furniture cushions in his office. Ryman was pretty much sold after that. And her dignified intelligence had Ramus and Reitman reconceiving the character of Dana Barrett altogether as somebody who would be much stronger. Instead of a fashion mo model, they let Weaver choose her to be a musician. And Vinkman should treat Dana as if Dana was out of his league and he needed to prove himself worthy of her attention. Her audition performance also had them change the script so that Dana would be possessed, like Lewis, and they would become terror dogs, minions of Gozer, in the next script revision. Now, the neighbor character, Lewis Tully, that was written with John Candy in mind, specifically his Johnny LaRue persona from SCTV. When Reitman gave Candy the script, Candy really had a hard time as to how to wrap his head around how to play Lewis. He thought, well, maybe he should be a German guy, and he would have a lot of big dogs around. Reitman was really... Not interested in any of that. He thought it was distracting. And besides, they were going to have terror dogs later. The audience would be very confused by having all of these dogs all over the screen. So further complicating the issue was the fact that Candy at that time was negotiating with Disney to make $350,000 a movie. And he thought he shouldn't do Ghostbusters for less than that, which Reitman was not pleased about. After doing his cameo for the Ghostbusters music video, Reitman really never worked with Candy again. Now, Ryman called on other improvisational comedians to read for the Lewis Tully role, now that Candy was not really going to be in the running. That included others like Michael McKean and others Reitman had worked with before. Reitman, in the end, would choose Candy's SETV buddy, Rick Moranis, who eagerly accepted under the condition that he could rewrite the swinging bachelor character meant for Candy into a nerdy accountant that he thought he could really add a lot of comedic value to. 
Now, Sigourney Weaver proved to be just as silly and quick-witted as the other comedians that she had on board. She was really game for anything that they threw at her and, and more. In a scene where demon arms burst through an armchair to assault Dana while she's sitting in it, the technicians were very cautious. They didn't want to touch her overly roughly, and they also wanted to avoid certain places. They thought it would be rude to grab her. After several timid takes, Weaver, she started barking at the men, get rough, molest me, and they stopped holding back after that. For Winston Zenimore, the top choices of Eddie Murphy and Gregory Hines, they were unavailable doing other movies, and that opened it up to auditions. Ernie Hudson, he he was somebody Reitman had worked with before. He was in his 1983 production Space Hunter. He was initially disregarded because he was not really a comedian, definitely didn't have an improv background. And after many callbacks, though, they, they did, in the end, choose Hudson over runner-up Clevant Derricks because they liked his everyman qualities. And Winston's part was much larger. They went through a lot of rehearsals. Winston was almost as much of a Ghostbuster as everybody else. But the studio heads, as they were about to film, started growing worried that the funniest bits in the movie, like getting slimed by Onion Head or conjuring the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, those were going to Winston to be played by an unknown non-comedian. Audiences paid to see Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd be funny, and they should get the biggest laugh lines. So Winston's role was gutted to just being a random guy seeking a steady paycheck who shows up halfway through to become a Ghostbuster. Now, after Sandra Bernhard turned down the Ghostbusters secretary role of Janine Melnitz, it went to runner-up Annie Potts. Now, Potts said that the scripted chemistry between Janine and Egon, which was mostly removed for the final cut, it came easy to her because she had a real-life crush on Ramus, something that also was echoed by Sigourney Weaver in a goodbye poem at the end of the shoot. Reitman let all of his comedians improvise as much as they wanted to, and he would work out all of the best moments into the final cut. Reitman was used to working with the main guys. He worked with Murray. This was the third time after, you know, Stripes and Meatballs, but also Ramis had worked alongside Murray in 1975 in the off-Broadway show called The National Lampoon Show, which Reitman happened to have produced. Ramis appeared also in Stripes, and he wrote both Stripes and Meatballs for Reitman as well as writing Animal House for Reitman before that. You know, these guys could really do no wrong. They were setting trends in film comedy during this era. Now, as far as the visual effects, that was another obstacle. Most visual effects companies were either busy or maybe they were too small, too inexperienced to really handle the job. They consulted Cinefix magazine publisher Don Shea to see what was out there. Maybe they could get somebody. And Shea tipped them off that industrial light and magic effects guru... Richard Edlund was contemplating leaving and starting his own company at that time. Edmund was somebody who knew how to present ghosts. He had just really been acclaimed for his work for Poltergeist, and he seemed like this would be the perfect guy for the job. But he didn't have the money, so Columbia and MGM, they helped finance Edlund leaving ILM and starting his own studio called Boss Film Studios, and they acquired Douglas Trumbull's shop, entertainment effects group in Marina del Rey to get started on Ghostbusters for Columbia and the film 2010 for MGM. Now, Reitman wanted them to make scary ghosts, not funny ghosts, so that the humor would release the tension. I guess Onion Head was the exception of being kind of a funny ghost. Ackroyd called Onion Head, a.k.a. Slimer, the ghost of John Belushi after Reitman compared him to Bluto from Animal House. And the, that comparison caused the effects crew to start lifting facial expressions as well as behavior directly from Belushi's performance as Bluto. 
The terror dogs went through several different designs during the conceptual phase. They were lovably silly in the beginning, and then they become kind of like corpse dogs, and then in the end they became gargoyles come to life. Reitman also worried that the Marshmallow Man finale, maybe that might be a stretch too far. He was really gambling there, but they couldn't come up with any better alternates as to what would be the big bad at the end. So luckily, test audiences, once it was all said and done, howled with laughter on Mr. Stapuff's arrival. Now, Reitman instructed his acclaimed cinematographer, Laszlo Kovacs, even though Ghostbusters was a broad comedy, he should not shoot it like one. It should be much more dramatic. The actors should be the ones to provide the jokes. Everything else should look like a dramatic picture. He should capture New York City as its own character. Meanwhile, the legendary John DeCure, he designed the million-dollar rooftop temple at Burbank Studios, the largest at that time in Hollywood. It had a floating pyramid and a cyclorama Manhattan skyline as tall as a six-story building. The painters added uh, people engaged in lovemaking in a few of the windows of the building to amuse themselves. Of course, it was too small to be visible by movie-going audiences, but they amused the crew around. The phenomenal scoring duties went to Reitman's go-to composer, Elmer Bernstein. He perfectly set the mood for nearly every scene in this film. It's very light and mirthful when it's time for comedy, and it's very eerie when it's going for more horrific vibes. It's also marvelous to observe how it sets the audience up for a hearty laugh or a big scare time after time. Although Bernstein really disliked having to take a back seat to some of the pop music of the soundtrack for some key sequences, the hit soundtrack does mesh very well with what's going on in the film, especially Ray Parker Jr.'s hit theme song. The story of that theme song could be an episode of this podcast in and of itself, although I won't go into it. Now, the film's title, in the end, became a copyright issue. They discovered that Filmation had produced a live-action kids' show called The Ghostbusters in 1975, and that resulted in some unexpected lengthy negotiations at the start of the shoot. Early promotional teasers for Ghostbusters ran with the No Ghosts logo, and it did not have the title, and that caused some people to think that they were making a Casper movie. Scenes mentioning Ghostbusters during this film needed to have alternate takes to use alternate names like Ghost Stoppers or Ghost Blasters or Ghost Breakers. Four weeks into the shoot, Columbia finally secured the rights to the name Ghostbusters for a half million dollars and 1% of the profits for any Ghostbusters films that they made. Meanwhile, they weren't out of the woods with that No Ghosts logo. Harvey Comics sued, although unsuccessfully, for $50 million because the logo had a resemblance to Fatso from Casper. When it came time to publicize the film, there was an additional snag. Bob Woodward's book called Wired, The Short Life and Fast Times of John Belushi was just coming out. And that interrupted Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd in wanting to do promotional interviews. Aykroyd, in particular, was depicted in the book as an enabler of Belushi's addiction and a cokehead himself. Aykroyd categorically denied all of this, and he called the book exploitative trash. Murray, meanwhile, would walk out on interviews if they started bringing the book up. He didn't want to promote it any more than he had to. At press junkets, Reitman and the other cast members had to field a lot of the questions while their big stars, Murray and Aykroyd, they would habitually show up late to talk only to the reporters that they truly trusted. Nevertheless, despite all of these issues, Ghostbusters shattered every expectation and became, in 1984, a pop culture phenomenon that exists to this day. At that time, it topped the box office for its first seven weeks 
in a summer that was dominated by big releases, and it remained in the top 10 for over four months. It took in a monumental $230 million just in the United States. Only Beverly Hills Cop grossed more in 1984. And that didn't even count the massive soundtrack sales, as well as all of the tie-in merchandise that not only came out in 1984, it's still very lucrative today. Now, if you want to see how chemistry benefits a film, I think you should look no further than Ghostbusters. This is the perfect example in pinpointing why chemistry does work. Each part of this ensemble adds to the overall piece to make it a comedic masterpiece. This is a movie that came out at the peak time for all of these actors and all of these creative minds to do exactly what they do best. Have fun with this material and take us on one hell of a very wild and inventive ride. I cannot say any more about Ghostbusters to convince you. It is a really funny movie, one of my favorite comedies of all time. I've watched this film, I would guess, probably 30 to 40 times, somewhere in that range, and I just love watching it. I know every beat, and yet it's just so comfortable and fun to watch. I can't give it anything less than four stars out of four. Four stars on my scale means that I do think this is an excellent comedy, and I definitely recommend it to everyone. Four stars out of four for Ghostbusters. Now, there's a lot of other things to talk about with Ghostbusters. You know, this is a film that has a lot that people have written about it over the years. And so a lot of that material I'm going to carry over into the next episode, specifically covering 1989's sequel, Ghostbusters 2. I have a lot to say about that film as well. So I hope that you'll join in and listen to that when the episode comes out. If you have your own thoughts on Ghostbusters that you want to impart, you can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram are also there if you want to get in touch. Until next time, thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. Hi, this is Vince, and I am talking with my daughter, Lily. Lily's now currently nine years old, and if you've been a longtime listener of this show, you know that she used to appear on the early episodes when she was like five and six years old. Lily, what have you been doing with yourself? Not really. Mostly school and piano. I think what Lily's saying is that we have basically burdened her with school and making her practice piano in her off time. She has had no time (laughs) to be interviewed by me for the podcast, which is kind of a sad thing. But you have been watching some of the 80s movies with me, and the one that we watched recently, you were excited to see, even though you've seen it before, you don't remember it, and it was Ghostbusters. What do you think about Ghostbusters? I really like the movie. I just don't like the parts where the um, ghosts turn into scary things. (laughs) <laughs> but that's like a big part of this movie. How do you get through some of those scarier scenes? I think those are the parts that were a lot of people, a lot of kids, think are the most fun. Because I just focus on the happy parts and the exciting things. Out of all the many characters that are in Ghostbusters, which would you say is your favorite character? Not necessarily your favorite Ghostbuster. I like the slime guy. Oh, Slimer? Now... As far as the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, Mr. Stay Puft, what do you think about him as the uh, the bad guy? Were you scared? Or were you laughing? Or I think he's kind of cool because I like marshmallows. And one thing I notice about him is he, unfortunately, is not wearing any pants. Do you find that disturbing? Yes. <laughs>
<laughs> I find that disturbing too. I don't know why you, you know, he gets up, he gets dressed, he puts the hat on, he puts the, the bib on or what have you and the tie and just says, good enough. Now, for some reason during the movie, you seem to really like race dance. Which is the, uh, the the one that acts kind of like a kid sometimes when he's really excited about. Yeah, I like race kids. <laughs> race dance. Race dance. Lily likes Ray. I happen to like Peter Beckman because I'm a big Bill Murray fan. Are there any characters in this movie that you dislike? The library ghost that turns into a monster. What about the terror dogs? I think that they're actually kind of cute. If you walked into your room and a terror dog was in there, you would actually be okay with that? I would snuggle. <laughs> I don't know if they're in the, in the mood to snuggle, but if they're down for that, maybe you can turn them around. Maybe that's all they need to have a more sunny disposition. Now, as far as the Ghostbusters car, I know that you're really into really cool-looking cars. Do you think the Ecto-1 is a car that you would drive around? No, because I would seem like a weirdo. The Ecto-1 has a lot of room. You could probably pack all your friends in there. No, I would pack my stuffed animals. (laughs) Okay, now you would probably look like a weirdo driving around as a nine-year-old with a car full of stuffed animals. So, now we're going to be watching Ghostbusters 2 next. Are you excited about that? Yeah. Do you remember watching that at all last time? Nope. Lily has completely forgotten all of the Ghostbusters films, but the good thing about it is that she can enjoy them all over again as if they were brand new. I wish I could do that. I've seen Ghostbusters so many times that it no longer holds a lot of surprise for me, but I do enjoy watching it, especially when I can expose Lily to it every couple of years when she's forgotten about it. So we're looking forward to Ghostbusters 2 on the next episode. So on a scale of 1 to 10, what do you give the first Ghostbusters? 7. Seven. This is the lowest you've ever given any movie that we've ever watched. But I respect that because we're at least in a scale of one to ten within the scale. We used to give them a hundred and stuff like that. So scale of one to ten, Lily gives it a seven on a second time watch, but the first one that she remembers. I definitely have my work cut out for me to convince her that it's a much better film than that. Anyway, until next time, thanks so much. Say bye-bye, Lily. Bye-bye.